peace, peace, and welcome to another exciting discussion on Cook on Quarantine. Uh, this is going to be, as I always say, this is going to be fun, but I'm really excited about this conversation because I'm talking to a movie star. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not just in actuality, but she looks like a movie star. Oh, <laughs> I got Thank the privilege you. of meeting uh, Miss Rachel Holmes. Um, I want to say it was back in 2004. 15, 2016, when we had our first conversation, we met a little before that, but um, yeah. I was speaking at a, a, a get-together in LA uh, for Williams College, and she, it was the topic of education. We got an opportunity to kind of connect afterwards. I, little did I know she was like an international superstar <laughs> on the big screen. Um, but Hyperbole. Does, <laughs> but does so many other things from... Um, you know, educating young people in, in the arts to advance the conversations on uh, anti-racism, things that I don't even know, you know, that, that we're going to find out today. So uh, thank you for doing this, Miss Rachel Holmes. I appreciate Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So we also went to the same college, uh, Williams yes, we College. we did. But before we get into that, I wanted to sort of like just touch on a little bit about how you grew up. You you have you have several siblings, right? I do. I'm the youngest of five, okay. and there's a pretty big big age gap in between us. I'm I'm the baby, mm-hmm. and uh, some of my older sis- uh, siblings are in their sixties. And my closest sibling is about eight years older than me. Mm. He's a physician, so we grew up together. It's kind of like two sets of full siblings. So I was definitely a big old surprise because my mother had me when she was, I think, forty six or forty seven. Yeah. Where'd you so, grow up? County of Kings, good old Brooklyn, New York, first gen, uh, family hails from Jamaica, West Indies. And yeah, I am an ever proud native New Yorker. Uh, you know, part of being a native New Yorker, at least of a certain era is, you know, we're all polyglots, right? We're all used to giving directions in your native language, wherever you come in from. Uh, we've seen it all. Uh, as evidenced by right now, we're used to seeing our city go through unbelievable heartbreak and outstanding resilience and tenacity and love so it's it's another cycle it's another cycle yeah that we're going yeah. through yeah yeah and i want to get into that too so i've had a lot of jamaicans on the show oh yeah <laughs> and i've had a lot of brooklynites on the show and i've had okay. a lot of williams alumni graduates on the show you know and, uh, <laughs> and um, cool, cool. people always think when, I, when we talk about jamaicans talk about like how many jobs they have or whatever but i swear like people from Jamaica, i mean it's true yeah that's not the thing that I harp on, though. The thing that I always find is that Jamaicans, like, their skin glows. <laughs> Melanin popping. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, dang, there's something out there. That, um, so you had a big family, Jamaican roots, but you were raised, born and raised in the, in the States in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. what, was, uh, what was some of that, like, upbringing like? I mean, pretty cool. You know, immediately, my parents were great about exposing me to the arts and, you know, Growing up in the 80s, you come outside, you see the boombox on the corner, everyone's breakdancing, go down to Fort Greene, Spike is, you know, shooting a joint. I mean, all of us are in at least one, one or two of those, you know, because he wanted straight up, his background actors were the kids. He's like, hey, you want to be in a joint? Go. You know, and Rosie Perez would come in and be like, come on, kiddies, you know, so cool. Uh, lots of culture, lots of languages, you know, to go to a certain neighborhood, you had to speak the language. So I tag along with my mother and we're speaking Russian. You know, we're speaking Spanish, we're speaking French, we're speaking Creole. You know, it's, it, was, it was pretty cool. The city bit back in a different way, you know. 
of course, at the same time, we knew what was going on with uh, the, you know, the drugs, with, you know, crack and cocaine being dropped into the neighborhoods and baiting, baiting people, you know, and right. that, that war, right? Reaganomics was in full flex, right? Mm-hmm. Very aware of that, what it means to be from an immigrant family working, we say twice as hard to be half and good, half as good, but we have to, we have to alter that equation. It's way more than twice as hard. <laughs> um, and yeah, just this, I definitely grew up with a sense of pride about I have the blue passport and what that means, what currency that is. And also just that interesting balance beam of being first gen, you know, in pre-kindergarten, I was sent home with a safety pin note that says we cannot understand when Rachel speaks. And, you know, oddly, I sounded very Jamaican to my parents, even though I was born here. They were perplexed by that. So that's the first time that they realized I had a very sticky ear. It was very hard for me not to sound exactly like my parents. And so very quickly, they did what a lot of parents do is, okay, can you switch? You know, can you sound different? Don't sound like us, sound like them. Mm. So that was the first time I got really intrigued and confused by language because I thought it was very weird for those who were teaching me English to tell me not to sound like them and to sound like people that I spend limited hours with during the day. Do you want to say any more about that? Uh, about just language acquisition in general? More so about don't sound like us, sound like them. And, um, and, yeah. and, and, and the yeah. various places that goes. Because, you know, with, with one another common uh, thing that I see with especially uh, Jamaican immigrants is the emphasis on education. Yes. And so... Yes. But that was true for your family. Okay, how, how did that play Ab- out? Absolutely. Both of my parents were, you know, my, my father's passed. My mother's still with us, thankfully. Uh, outstanding hard workers, the hardest workers I've ever met. True to form, true to the in-living color. You know, one job, you don't have one job. I mean, everyone was working a ton. My first professional job was probably when I was like seven or eight. I started mm. modeling. My mother had me become a kid model. Mm. And by the time I was 13, I joined Actors' Equity. You know, I was running, I was working as a professional actor off Broadway while in, while in middle and high school. Um, so yeah, education is sacrosanct. And a big part of why I became an educator is, is watching, watching my parents, honestly. My father was an Olympic boxer for Jamaica and a light heavyweight. And on off nights, he would have a computer science clinic downstairs. So my father became, I guess, a, a coder, a systems engineer after his boxing days were over. And then he also was a boxing coach. So he ran a, a professional or a boxing gym outside, you know, in our basement and then also computer school. So um, wow. <laughs> very early on, I got the bird's eye view. Uh, my mother grew up, she was a stenographer, a seamstress, mm-hmm. a farmer. I mean, she made all of my older siblings clothes. She made some of my clothes. There's nothing my mother couldn't do. Like together, there's nothing that they couldn't do. Wow. And, and, and it comes at a price, you know? I mean, the cellular trauma is real. You know, you didn't exactly get parenting books. You know, my parents were born in the early 30s. My father told me a very chilling story that checks out that he met his grandfather when he was a little boy twice. And his grandfather grew up in slavery times, you know, and, the, and a lot of people don't realize it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> you know, um, my parents mathematically should be my grandparents. So I've always felt a generation closer to the importance of education. And I identify as a citizen artist, a teaching artist, no matter if I'm shooting a show on stage, I'm always back in the classroom. Right. No ego in that game. Just I have to see it because it's still happening. You know, mm-hmm. we learned through the sixteen nineteen project that I think it's eighty one percent of educators are are Caucasian, and that's a problem because of that percentage. Very low percent up until recently really knew, you know, or wanted to learn the actual history of this country. 
So education right. is is everything. It leads you away from uh, ignorance. It literally, duco wrote, duco ducere duki duxit, Latin, like to lead. But literally, education is to lead. And I'm obsessed with the comorbidity of segregation and education. I think a lot of people don't realize if you look through the the annals of history, through all the Supreme Court rulings, the back and forth, you know, the Plessy versus Ferguson, the board, uh, Brown versus Board of Ed, all these things to segregate, separate but equal. No, you got to desegregate. And, you know, the Southern part of the country pushed back every time. They did not want it to be equal, you know, and, and we're still in that. And it's, it's wild. It's a tidal wave. So education is, is everything, everything. And I, at this point, I've thought this for a while, but a lot of my schooling happened at home. And as a teacher, you know, in public schools, I have to say it's, it's stunning how many parents, and I understand, but you really should not leave it up to your schools to educate your kids, especially if you're in an oppressed group. The schools were not built for us. <laughs> if you study your history, it was not built for us. So it is extremely important that we educate our own kids. My brother has two kids. Uh, I have a sister who has eight kids. They're all adults now. But at this point, I'm saying, look, if you're if you're in K through 12, your kids should be learning coding. They should learn how to. You should, they should be watching you do taxes. They should be mini entrepreneurs. You know, they should be able to cook their own. You know, this is and this is nothing new. This is something that we knew. This right. is coming back to the earth that born us. You know, and mm-hmm. and being self sufficient. So it's very important. Education is a huge deal, and I love talking to you because I'm obsessed, and this is what I talk about every single day. Mm-hmm. is how do we find the different portals to education, especially at a time now where some students don't even have Wi-Fi. You know, people don't realize it's a luxury just to have Wi-Fi to be able to be on Google Classroom and continue right. your curriculum with your teacher. Not every student has that. Yeah, and, and you brought up a lot that um, we can we can spend a good amount of time on. And, and uh, you know, this happens to me too with, 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 with many of the people that I've talked to. It's like, dang, like, I don't, I don't know where to start. But what, the yeah. one of the first things I really wanted to wanted to say was that, um, like, you must have a vicious left hook. Ooh, you know, I'm not I'm not a southpaw. I have a really <laughs> good. I really I have a really good right cross. Oh, okay. Really good right cross, yeah. <laughs> okay. And 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 the jab. My father was always like, the jab. You have to have a good jab. The jab is but everything. I'm a, I'm a, yeah. yeah, the jab is everything. And the footwork. I mean, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. it's it's unbelievable. You know, my father passed a little while back, and in the last few weeks of his life, I was his primary caregiver, and we would just go on watching all the best fights on YouTube. YouTube is just the best thing ever, and it was great to pull up these fights. And you have to have the footwork because by round two, your hands get so heavy, and the mm-hmm. minute they drop, you're open. You know, so mm-hmm. you have to be able to get out of there. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, there's something about boxing. There's something about solitary sports. It's you have to really discipline your mind. It's truly a science to get into that headspace. No, yeah, I um, I recently started training Muay Thai, and uh, Muay Thai is everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So I didn't grow up with learning any like you know any of the technique behind fighting. <laughs> Self defense is so important, and um, it is yes, it is. That that we emphasize, uh, you know, families, certain families do, but as a society, it's not something that we embrace. And so I wanted to say that I thought it'd be funny, like you got to I'm sure, but it's the right cross. The right cross is what, what you get at. And so, all right. So then yeah. but one of the other things though, too, is that uh, I had another guest. He's, he's actually black Honduran, or I don't know if I said that right. Honduran. <laughs> but, Honduran, uh, yeah. And he talked about, his name is Chris Bennett and he runs a tech company out here. Chris and he Bennett. talked about his, cool. uh, his family 
constantly running businesses and then them uh, having to file bankruptcy. He's like, but like, you know, we were fine. Like, you know, yeah, we're in bankruptcy. It sounded serious, but like we bounced back. It was cool. So seeing seeing that, right? Seeing all of the, um, you talked about seeing taxes and yep. like bankruptcy, that's like a tax thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like people uh, watching a transition and watching families persist and having that first education. And it sounds like with, with your parents, there is a, a big emphasis on like DYI and, uh, mm. and self-learning. How did you engage with school? Was it like, was, was your thoughts like, um, okay, everything I need to know is here? Or was it like, <laughs> this is only a part of what I need to know? Like, how did that play out for you? I actually, I actually had a really hard time in school. My, my parents were very old school and, you know, and grew up in a, in a time where they definitely placed me in competitive educational environments, but I was in this, I was in pretty white schools. Like it was very often I was the only, you know, black woman, black girl. Um, it was really, really hard. And it's been an interesting couple of weeks because some of my schools, some of the, the programs that I frequented and survived, I like to say, hit the news for how, you know, people are finally, whether it's anonymously or calling people out specifically, how incredibly entrenched the racism was there. And I, I'm, I'm, it, it it feels it feels a bit sacrilegious to um, to not complain but to speak ill of having the opportunity to go to competitive. You know, I, I'm I'm in a place where there is a cognitive dissonance because even at the time I knew that I was suffering. I knew that it was racist. I spoke up about it. You know, this it's not, it, this this isn't the first year that people have spoken up about you know what's go, what's going on. But it was that it was that well take your education and run with it. Cause I did learn di- diligence. I did learn, you know, to how to speak my mind, but those are things I, I felt that I learned through my parents first. And it, it was a hard lesson. You know, I look back and I go, man, yeah, I, I wish I'd gone to a historically black college. Yeah. I, I can easily say that, you know, I just, when I think of mental health, when we start talking about mental health, it's an, it's a no brainer that I suffered far too much you know, um, and still suffer far too much in a lot of ways, depending on the rooms that I'm in, you know, and I've been on a bit of a listening tour in the past three years, especially with my black women in all industries, you know, advertisements, the arts, education, tons of different industries where a lot of times those who are giving us the most trouble are on the BIPOC spectrum also. It's, you know, you can be on the BIPOC spectrum and actually be a gatekeeper and be maintaining the white supremacy because you're being paid to, you know? So it's, it's an interesting time to watch, to watch certain leaders start to wake up themselves and go, Oh, have I been part of this? Or maybe they don't wake up and suddenly they're doing the good old DEI work that they've never, (laughs) they've never, you know, wondered about before. And so it's, it's a very interesting time. It's a big Sankofa time where everyone is looking back to see where they're headed and, all the mirrors are going up, you know, but I, w- I would definitely say while I'm very thankful for all, all the opportunities, I mean, I can't even begin to express my gratitude. It definitely came at a price, you know, um, and I think about that when I, when I think of the choice to become an artist, which is such a hard road for so many reasons, mm-hmm. you know, and it was definitely born out of trauma and needing to express myself and trying to take hold of a narrative that felt a little forced down my throat in a lot of ways. Yeah. I want to, I want to focus a little bit about your, your, your acting career um, and all the various types of art that you sort of committed yourself to. 
because yeah. I don't want to just limit it to acting. You probably know you probably can do like 30 things and I'm not aware <laughs> of like, like 10 instruments and um, ah. can do like gymnastics and 12 different types of dances and stuff like That's that. So crazy. Styles. <laughs> so, um, but you, 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 let's go back to uh, the modeling. So, so you started modeling and, and you were in, it sounds like you were some extras and some movies coming up yeah extras was uh, extras was definitely my summer after my first year of grad school um through which i completely suffered that's a whole different story and yeah it's been it's been a long road you know i mean it's it's one of those things where a lot of times especially with acting people think you're either you've either never done anything or you're a superstar and they don't realize that there's a lot of levels in between you know and i'm admittedly a massive introvert and i like to take my time with things i love my privacy I'm also an actress who has never, ever done nudity. I put my foot down in my 20s that I would, and that's not a judgment to people who do it, but just for me, it's very important to me that I only take on roles that are all, that are cerebral and about the, you know, about moving in that way. And, and I've stood my ground and I've lost quite a, quite a lot of jobs because of that. You know, you have to drop out I, in the I, end. I think I lost you know? that, lost quite a lot of job because of the decision to do what exactly? Uh, to not engage in nudity on camera. Okay, okay. Yeah, yep. And it's it's interesting. I caught a story with, uh, I think, the actri- actress Megan Fox. I caught on Twitter the other day that she's speaking up about, you know, what it was like to be 15 years old and have studio executives put her in barely, barely their clothing. And, you know, so it's a lot of the inter- intersectionality of being... You, you know, a black person and also a woman and also new to this set. Cause I actually haven't done TV for that long. It's only been a couple of years. I'm more of a theater. I'm a theater baby. You know, I grew up going to theater and watching theater and I got my MFA at Tisch for stage work. And it's, it's a very interesting path and it's, it's a riveting time to be awake right now because a lot of people are finally speaking up about what it actually means Mm-hmm. to be a black woman in these rooms, you know, in rooms that are still, and we've come a long way, but there's still way, farther to go there's still a lot farther to go in terms of writing our own stories producing our own things not le- not trying to audition or be heard by people who you know might not have our best interest at heart or just don't know our stories in a genuine way mm-hmm. as an actor i've been in rooms where i'm portraying a role or i'm rehearsing something and because the director has no idea what um, a response would look like culturally it falls it falls on deaf ears they don't recognize me or my reaction to th- something and they immediately think that it's bad or inorganic because they don't understand that culturally, no, that's how, you know, if I brought in a couple of friends in, of my culture, we'd all do that in sync probably, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a very, it's, a, I get very meta. That's the educator in me. I get very meta about the artistic process of rehearsing a play or of shooting something on set. You know, it, it's, it's very interesting. We all have impl- implicit biases and, and it, it can play out in full form sometimes in the arts. Um, I'm interested in, in knowing like the the types of roles that you've taken on or that, that have like really challenged you yeah. cerebrally. Because um, cause I, I hear you talking about a commitment to that. Was there an initial role where you were like, okay, this is it. This is like, I want to do more of this. The two roles that come to mind, I, I think the first one's definitely Mad Dogs, just because that was kind of, I call them shiny moments, you know, because it, it was a moment where, you know, I'd auditioned for maybe two episodes of the show, but they booked me for like eight or nine. And that seemed terrifying at the time, you know, mm-hmm. and we were cross-boarding, which in TV means that you're not shooting everything in sequence. So you might, you know, if you have nine episodes, you might be shooting episode seven before episode five. 
Mm. So I'm used to stage. I'm used to linear, right? You start at the beginning of the play and the audience watches and lives through your journey, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. very organic. You unravel, you come back together, whatever your super objective is. So very quickly I had to map out, like I played a character named Erica Diggs and, and we shot in Puerto Rico, but it actually takes place in Belize. The story takes place in Belize. And she's uh, native to where she is. And it it was very interesting. Every step of the way, the cultural metrics, you know, the, you know, this is a role that I did in my natural hair, which I suffered through graduate school of being told in every production all the time, when are you straightening your hair? Mm -hmm. Why don't you put a wig on? Why don't you shave your head? You know, and I have reserve seats. I still have the emails, (laughs) you know? So Mm -hmm. it's, it's just one of those things where that was a role where, every step of the way I had to advocate for that character because I was genuinely advocating for myself, you know? And it was a beautiful thing because the more I advocated, the more I found my allies. And I'm still very close friends with the creator of that show and one of the main producers of it, you know? So it's, there's something to be said about just being honest and sticking your neck out sometimes because you might actually find that you have more of a tribe than you think, you know? So the, 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 the challenging part or the, the, the positive part of that uh, that experience was the advocacy and and seeing sort of like things being embraced offset. But what what was what was like a role where you got into the type of character and you were like, these are the type of characters I want to portray. Well, that's that's a great question. I I think I I think no matter what role I take on, I I make it I make it so. You know, I think that's the beauty of of acting is is you. You, you read a story and it, it moves you. It, either it moves you or it doesn't. And for me, once it moves me, it's, it's, it's all about growing that character within me and, having, and trusting my director and seeing that if our visions align, because if you, there's a, a very special hell when you don't have the same vision as your director, you know, it can be really hard. And that doesn't mean it's wrong or right, but you want it you want it to really gel. You want it to be a true collaboration, working together, right? So I wouldn't say that I have characters that, that challenge me, like, oh my God, I don't know how to play them. I think it's more, maybe they inhabit worlds that I, Rachel, Grace, don't usually inhabit. Like I played a character who was obsessed with having a baby. And that was something that my friends, you know, really teased me about because I've never been the kind of woman who is obsessed. You know, I'm not like, oh, since I was a little girl, I wanted to have a baby. You know what I mean? Um, So I remember I was just like, oh, that's going to be interesting, you know, to kind of flip into that. Like, how do I flip into just a a state of thinking that doesn't usually, that feels a bit foreign to me, you know? Um, But, you know, it's funny. I I do this exercise where I I run courses at different theaters sometimes and at, at Queen's Theater, here in Corona in Queens, New York, I during the, the fall, there's a beautiful set of uh, a core, kind of like a, a practicum on auditioning for actors who have special needs, you know, are physically, mentally challenged. I think we, I mean, we all have challenges, but this is a population of brilliant actors who for far too long have been ignored just because they don't fit into the cookie cutter mold. It's always a masterclass for me, even though I'm helping to teach it, I'm actually the real student. And um, I do identify someone who is chronically ill and has, you know, has, has challenges. Um, and it's, there's something about taking a character and just running with it. Like you imbue it with yourself. And, and that's the whole thing. You know, you can bring in 10 amazing actors. You're going to get 10 very different versions of that character. Um, but something that I have them do is I have them take the breakdowns of all the characters they've played. Like look at your resume 
and go back to that first time that your management or your reps showed you the audition. Look at that paragraph, look at that breakdown, look at the adjectives and you book the part. So you know that they thought that you brought it and it's a beautiful, glorious list. And, and yeah, it makes me really happy to play roles that are women who are driven by conviction. I love stories with ethical dilemmas, you know, where you really, you could go either way and you have to kind of hold up the mirror to yourself. I love really tight language, linear, muscular language. I, I, I'm, it's, it's always a, if the audience gets ahead of you in any way. I do identify as a polyglot, so it is, it is a party if it's multilingual. I love that. I love those, those tributaries of travel and what it means to humble yourself enough to learn another language or learn, and learn a different dialect. So, so yeah, it's, there, there are definitely characters where you just you, you get to play. You get to do all the nerd idiosyncratic things that you were teased for in school, you know, and you get mm-hmm. to bring that to some, a role. And that's, that feels like just desserts. That feels about right. Yeah. Have you ever, uh, do you know Marquise Daisy? Williams I don't know. I don't, I don't know Marquise personally. No, but, uh, but yeah. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. definitely overlap. So yeah. 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 In so many ways, same college, same city. Same industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I had him on a podcast and um and he talked about uh sort of his his journey into being a documentary filmmaker and the types of people he's gotten to work with. One of the interesting one of the one of the reasons I brought that up because you know, along this line of like uh ch- characters that challenged you, we got we started into this long conversation about the the movie Belly with Nas Ooh, okay. and DMX and how okay. that how that ended up informing like how he was shooting these rap battles and he was, he was shooting these like hip hop rap battles. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And uh, he filmed the battle that I'm absolutely obsessed with. I've watched it like way more times than I'll, than I'll admit. (laughs) I had no idea that he did it though. I I found out like on the podcast that he filmed it. And, and so um, y'all should definitely connect. I'm sure y'all can vibe out on hella stuff. Y'all should do that. Yeah. Um, Wait, which battle? Which battle were you talking about that you will not say how many times you've watched? <laughs> <laughs> y'all should talk. Y'all should talk because y'all, you know, you, 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 have, you, have a, you have a lot of things in common. But, but where were those those films or plays for you that like, or actresses or actors, like, or Ooh, how actors are all actors, like, you know, what, oh, man. What were ins- inspirational to you? I mean, whoo, Lord, there, there's so many. My, my father, I watched a lot of films with my father and listened to a lot of music together. And my mother's a beautiful painter and singer. I don't know what came first. I do remember hearing uh, Sarah Vaughn's voice very early on in my childhood. And I thought it was a man. And I went to my mother and I said, Mommy, who is this man singing? And she said, not a man, not a woman, you know, oh man, just a woman. And I said, boy, I want to sound like that. And it's funny because I ended up being a contralto, much to my mother's chagrin because she's a super soprano and all the women in my family are sopranos. Um, but music was the first foray for me into storytelling. You know, I, I think a pretty voice is one thing, but a singer who actually moves you and takes you from point A to Z, you know, is, is truly a miracle. And uh, as for film, well, I'll start. The first theater piece I saw was a Trevor Rowan play, as a celebrated Jamaican playwright. And the play is called Smile, Smile Orange or Smile Orange. <laughs> and we saw it in the basement of a, church, of a church nearby in Brooklyn. And I remember because the lights came up and this beyond comprehension, gorgeous black woman, so, so dark, so chocolate that her skin reflected, like it was like a reflective surface. 
she was the one who would pick up the phone in the lobby, you know, and it was called Mocha Beach Hotel. So she'd pick up the phone and go, Mocha Beach Hotel, good afternoon, you know, and then she'd be very formal, kind of standard Jamaican, you know, and then she'd switch, you know, the phone line, literally switch the, the line and go, well, go on me, is it? You know, and then she'd sit right into the patua. And I just remember it was a magic show watching her flip back and forth from, you know, kind of Jamaican patua to standard Jamaican, you know, more. You know, and, and it was a magic show. And I remember we went, I wanted to go back and my dad took me back the next week and they were gone because it was a traveling troupe. And, you know, they struck, they, 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 they closed, the show closed. And like with every theater piece you go, you take off every prop, you mop, and it's as if it was never there. And I was just like, wow. And after that, I really got into film with my father. I mean, we mowed down everything like Al Pacino, Ruby D. Um, we also watched a tremendous amount of fights of boxing. So I start to see storytelling in very different ways. There's something, you kind of develop a muscle of watching a fighter go into different rings, right? With different fighters and see how they move. And I remember one day, this is obviously in the 80s, my father came home with saying, man, you have to see this boy, Nezi, that's my mother. He's like, you have to see this boy. And he was talking about Iron Mike. He was down at Golden Gloves and got to watch Iron Mike before he kind of blew up, you know? So for me, it's kind of like a, a mishmash of what came first, like what films did I watch? What, you know, my dad definitely showed me films I should not have seen way too early. Yes, I saw Scarface at age four. Probably not a good idea, but, you know, uh, I, I respect the craft, you know, and yeah, I, I, we'd actually watch anything. That's what, my father would genuinely watch anything. There was nothing that he, he nothing was too lowbrow or he wasn't a snob about it. He was like, a good story is a good story is a good story. So, and I respect that, you know, because I saw a lot of different acting techniques and styles because of that. Well, also being being from Brooklyn, you mentioned Spike Lee. You know, he's sort of the epitome around like doing it yourself, mm-hmm. all black cast, you know, iconic, iconic films, like culturally Culture. shifting yeah. uh, pieces that, uh, you know, like we felt like we were captured and our story was told and like, you know, you know, Spike Lee means something. And, yeah. and so, like, yeah, and you, you sort of mentioned this emphasis on wanting to see more of that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How are you looking at your role in evolving, pushing that forward, creating that? Really simple writing. Um, you know, one thing that the past few, I mean, these months have been very long years, right? So one of the things that these past few months has afforded me is, is some sense of stillness, you know, um, not jumping on planes all the time not running around, you know, I, I'm just personally still exhausted from having lost a parent a little while back. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I felt like my soul was tired and I put it to bed and kept running and now I'm back and I'm like, oh, here, here I am, you know, so it, it can be tricky. You know, I think there are, there are artists who book work, there are book jobs, there are artists who make jobs and, and, and some who do both, of course. And I'm definitely in a place now where a lot of the stories I've written but not shared, I'm starting to share them. You know, and I also sing and I'm starting to share a lot of my music and, and it's, it's a really, it's a really gratifying thing. It's really important to be able to do the stories that make you sit up a little bit taller. Um, Cause I think if you speak to artists of a certain generation, there was a lot of forcing. Well, I mean, I've lost work because I wouldn't perm my hair or, you know, and, and that blows my mind cause I'm not that old, but the world was actually pretty different just 10 years ago. <laughs> that's like, you know, just 10 years ago, it was very different. Just 15 years ago, it was very different. And I think that's something that technology has really helped, you know, and that's why I love it because now 
you can produce your own things and put your thing up and get supporters online. You know, you don't have all these gatekeepers these, who subscribe to these arcane rules of beauty and truth and what proper storytelling is and how a culture should be perceived or portrayed or mentioned or not mentioned. So I think it really is all in our hands and we have to run with it in every way. And I, I feel that way for education as well. And, you know, to me, art and education are, you know, mm-hmm. and science. Like I've never under, you know, I, I get the, you know, arts and science, right, left brain. I think, I think it is what it is. There are myriad intelligences. You know, I've been teaching for well over 15 years and I have never seen two students who think exactly alike. And that's from working with K through 12, that's working through entrepreneurs and startups and SF, that's working with uh, the incarcerated, that's working anywhere, you know. So I think gone are the days, hopefully, of this idea that you have to fit into a certain box to succeed. And and we're starting to see that, you know, it's it's interesting, this COVID, I mean, it, it's it's an awful thing. And something that we often have to do, especially for our culture, is we have to see fight for those silver linings you know of what these things bring and i do i know that the only reason we are where we are in this in in you know i I took a walk today and in every window is black lives matter you know watching people of all races say say this you know stunning thing that just a few years ago i mean they're almost labeled a terrorist cell you know i remember when i was in la i got to meet angela davis and there was this moment, I mean, I was in tears when I realized I was going to meet her, but there's also this element of danger, you know, because we they weren't supported. And, you know, and I think it's very important to realize that had the world not watched those murders in triplicate, we would not be where we are. Had people not been sheltering in place and forced to just watch the screens and see Ahmaud Arbery's murder, see Breonna Taylor's murder, see, you know, we probably wouldn't be where we are because everyone would be distracted by their lives, you know, because we're used to that, you know, we're used to not getting out of bed. When one of ours is killed, we still expected to go to work that day, though. You, you you mentioned the same with the arts and 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 education and science and and uh, what I take from that and what I also believe is that the values drive the work mm. and that, that the values yep. show up, um, yep. no the what the push is, and um, and you know part of the reason for this platform was not seeing enough of the emphasis on you know, black excellence or people mm. that a craft or people that are trying to improve themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I talk to people from all different walks of life, but, uh, you know, please believe like this is about, <laughs> uh, elevating stories that can inspire, inspire people. And, yeah. and what the, what movies do is a, it's a trip how whenever something happens, not whenever, but several times when something happens, people reference a movie to help understand what's going on, like The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Right? Or yep. when, when COVID started, it talked about some outbreak, some movie. Oh, yeah. Depicted it happening. Yeah. And so our references are like fiction, you know? <laughs> like people are looking to fiction to help understand the world or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, even with Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Put some yep. black people on the wall. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like in the '80s, right? So it's a trip. How? Uh, so when when I wanted when I wanted to do this this podcast, which is in some ways it's like entertainment. It's like you know, they're real people talking about their real lives. Yeah. But I knew. I know that people's stories uh, can do as much for others as as like a system. 
Spike Lee has inspired more black people than our public schools, right? I can say something like <laughs> yep. charge like that or uh or Will Smith or Oprah, like yeah. it is, you yeah. Know? Or Barack, right? Yeah, so, LeBron. Um, yeah, yeah, man. We we, yeah. we create these archetypes and then we stretch and, and try to emulate, model ourselves, our parents or whatever. And yeah. so um this platform was in service of that, like and, and having you on um as someone mm. that is an active arts professional, uh, oh, but you. also has several other interests. But there's also this work that you do around um uh, uh, anti-racist uh, mm-hmm. workplaces and yep. and diversity and inclusion work. Mm-hmm. Like, let's, yep. let's sort of, how did you get into that and, and what does that work look like now? Yeah. Uh, so this, I got into this several years ago. I was living in Los Angeles and, you know, it was definitely a dead period in between, you know, between gigs, you know. I, I moved to LA and booked a show. I kept having to leave Los Angeles to shoot things, which was ironic. So I never got a sense to really, a, a chance to really settle into LA. And one of my nearest and dearest, who's also a Williams alum actually, was doing an accelerator up in, um, up in SF and knew that all along the way I'd always been, I've, I've been coaching friends forever in anything. Like I will coach you for an interview. I'll coach you to, you know, give a quarterly report, you know, in front of your staff. I'll coach, you know, public speaking is something that I really enjoy. My father was a Toastmaster there's some, there is a comfort about tribe, about being able to stand up in front of people and be comfortable. And I ended up getting called in to help a few entrepreneurs who were having dialect issues just because they're from different countries. And before I knew it, I got called in by Marvin Liao, who was one of the ex-partners of 500 Startups. And he basically brought me on to start training their batches, which is anywhere from, it depends on, it depends on the year, but 25 to 30 companies. They've scaled down quite a bit um, now, but it was, it was, amazing. You know, I'd go up, I was living in LA, so it's a short flight, right, up to SF, and I'd take the train down to Mountain View, and it was really great. I'd prepare companies from all over the world to do demo days and pitch, you know, pitch their ideas, kind of like Shark Tank, if you've seen Shark Tank. Either two-minute yeah, pitches I've heard or longer. Of it. I, don't, I don't have a yeah. TV, but I know. Oh, okay. Yeah. All good. Yeah. So it was, it was really a wonderful way to flex my coaching muscles, uh, to coach, to, to coach people from all over the world and to really get insight on how technology is pushing the world forward. And as an artist, I, I, I do believe artists keep the pulse on civilization. I think that's why when something cataclysmic happens, we suddenly come up with the movie, the montage that already saw it coming. You know, I do think that the arts, the whole history, you know, since time immemorial, the arts have been a way to warn our future generations of what's to come and also pay homage to things that are behind us. That's why one of the first things that happened, you know, through slavery was breaking our language and breaking our ability to tell our stories and then play our drums and have our rhythms, breaking us out of our natural rhythms. Those were deliberate acts to kill a culture, you know? So, so yeah, it was, it's, it was an amazing time of shooting something and then going back up to SF and working, you know, <laughs> I have a story once I, I went into a building in Mountain View and, and the security guard thought that I was there to do something janitorial because he said it was so rare. He had very, he really had to strain to think of a time when a black woman came in to go up to that floor, you know, and I've, and it's, it's interesting, you know, it's, it, there's something about teaching that is just so holy and so noble. And, you know, there are countries where everyone has to do a a year of military service. I really think we should have to teach 
I think we should have to teach. There should be a year of some kind, obviously screening, right? Making sure the person's able to do it and safe for everyone. But mm-hmm. it is really important that we teach our kids, especially given the history of education in this in this country. You know, if you do if you do your homework, you realize, or do your homes work, as I like to say, you realize that the public school system wasn't set up for us. You know, there was a time when it was set up for white children and end of full stop. So it's, it's very important no matter what room I walk into. And now, you know, it's about building allies and doing anti-racist work, but that's always been deep into my work anyway. I bring that work into the class. I brought that work into the classroom 15 years ago and I'm working with, you know, profoundly hard of hearing kindergartners. You know, when I go into a classroom, it's, or a room with uh, entrepreneurs, it's storytelling, honoring prior knowledge, assuming positive intent. Um, self-esteem building is huge for me when I would teach in the South Bronx. A lot of times it's like, forget about it. We don't have to do the monologue from whatever right now. Let's stand up and talk about our names. You know, a simple game I do is all you need is your name. Think about your name, write your name in the air, you know, with a, with a feather, with a quill pen, write it out in ink, you know, who can sign their name. Right. And then who named you? And I give them time to think, and this is all ages. This game, it works with everyone. When's the last time you got to sit down and realize, wow, I was loved enough that I was named? Because not everyone had that luxury, depending on the packaging you came in and the time that you entered this universe and this cosmos, right? So if we can build up that sense of self-pride and love, and, and it's something that I, that I aspire to every day, and it's not always easy, but doing diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racist work, all the, you know, the, and I love it, the language keeps changing, right? Everyone's scrambling on LinkedIn and changing their titles every other day, depending and I think that's actually a really good thing because the language is having a hard time catching up to where we are. And that's a riveting time to be alive where the language has not caught up to where we are and we get to name, we actually get to pave the road ahead of us linguistically, you know, and, and psychologically. It's, 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 it's just so, it's a very exciting time. Yeah. And, and there's been this, um, there's obviously been people like you and others that um, are watching this happen but have already been committed to this, you know? So it seems like there's more of a mainstream embrace of, of work that's sort of like that's that's been ongoing uh, since before we were born and our parents were born and our grandparents were born. And, you know, I just, I just released an article today. Uh, Today is 4th of July, which we haven't gotten into yet. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, and it was about uh, black independence and achieving independence in 2020. Mm. And, you know, knowledge itself, uh, like, you know, like you, you've sort of been tapping on our, yeah. our, our history, our names, our, mm. what, what was actually set up for us and what wasn't, where, where a lot of this came from is, is at the root of yeah. everything. And for me, that has been really eye-opening around my own consciousness and it's kind of like ignited a, a focus on self-improvement, which, um, which I, which sort of for me is kind of like in honor of my ancestors. Like let me, be, let me be a better me in honor of them. Yeah. And, um, and uh, if if they did all that, like, dang, I ain't got no excuse but to be better, right? I Making like them the bar, yeah. as opposed yeah. to um, white society the bar. You know what I'm saying? Yep. yep. And um, and so uh, maybe not for the same reasons, but but based on our conversations, I know that you also have an ongoing focus on like improving yourself, keeping yourself mm-hmm. healthy. Yep. Uh, you, you talked about being a vegan. Yeah, vegan life, yes. Yeah, and so yeah. When, when I bring up some of those topics, like how does that, 
register with you? How, what ways have you been trying to improve yourself? Yeah, you know, it goes back to Audre Lorde, you know, self-care is an act of political warfare, you know, and growing up in a house with a father who was an athlete, you know, and, and a mother who came up before my father did, brought up four of my siblings before and, you know, was this matriarch who was one of the first black women to be in the front office at her job, you know, um, Taking care of yourself, especially your body, especially in a country that still has not figured out how to honor its citizens enough with basic health care. You, you must equip yourself. You must educate yourself about the food you're eating and where it's coming from. You must educate yourself and know what works for your body and what doesn't. And it's that, it's that self-love of wanting to feel good because that's one of those luxuries. This is a very important time where we can also learn what does it feel like to have those luxuries? Because a lot of the time we just think of like, oh, money, you know, if things were fair, We'd have more real estate. We'd have more this. We'd have more that. But we'd also have lower blood pressure and fewer cases of diabetes, you know, and healthy black women wouldn't be dying at an alarming rate in childbirth, you know? So if you don't have your health, you've got nothing. It doesn't matter how large your, you know, what your generational wealth is if you're passing down a house, if, you know, and, and mental health, because we are so programmed to press on and press on. There is integrity in that grit, but there also comes a time we have to say, hey, I actually want to enjoy the life I'm living and be able to sit back and, and see where things are, you know, and, and take stock and be with friends and be healthy and, you know, be able to retire for old age and live to see that old age, you know. So for me, veganism, I've been a vegan for well over a decade and it was purely nutritional. I, I was not doing well on the food in this country. And whenever I'd leave the country, I was doing better. It was very interesting. A lot of preservatives are putting things into this country. A lot of crap is put into foods. And you teach in poorer neighborhoods and your kids come in drinking, you know, crap, like blue drink and, you know, just garbage. And then you expect them to be able to, you know, take the work, you know, do a day's work. It's impossible. You know, I, the body is a machine, a most beautiful, glorious machine. And I haven't figured it all out. Stress, of course, is outstandingly unhealthy. And we're all under a tremendous amount of stress, as we well know. Our populations are buckling under the stress more than, you know, we, we've been living in a pandemic for quite a while. You know, COVID is a new pandemic for us. So it's, it's really important that things like cooking your own food, you know, and it's, I know it's easier said than done. These aren't easy fixes, but the quicker we can, you know, weave that into our children wanting to cook more, because that does equal saving money. And that also means knowing where your food's coming from and supporting black businesses, supporting black kitchens, cooking yourself, you know, um, showing a friend how simple it can be that you can be there for a friend when they're sick. You know, love comes in so many different forms. And when you start to put that love into your own body and not in a narcissistic way, not in a hubristic way, just in a, I'm here and I want to be here and I like being here, you know, it, it really does open all these doors. And that's why I love your podcast because you, you say it, you hit it on the head. If you can you know, take control of that Monday, right? If you can take control of that Monday, take control of that week, take control of that year, that's how I see nutrition as well. Yeah, you know? yeah. thanks for bringing up the, the show, the show uh, opening. <laughs> <laughs> right on, I appreciate the love. Um, so we didn't get, so you went to Williams and then mm-hmm. did you, you went to grad school. Where'd you go to grad school? I did. I went to NYU uh, right after graduating. Um, I went to Tisch School of the Arts for my Master of Fine Arts in Acting. And it's a okay. three-year program. Yeah. What does the rest of the year look like for Rachel Holmes? Oh my goodness. Hopefully a lot more sleep. Being, being isolated is, is always hard on everyone, but especially if you are 
introverted or, you know, already dealing with things that can be a, a real blow. So I definitely have a list of people I would love to genuinely give a hug to at some point this year. I'm genuinely sick to my stomach that we are currently banned from traveling to places where, I mean, I, I lived in Paris for quite a while. I lived in different, you know, have loved ones all over the world. You know, it's, it's a really hard time to, to actually wonder if you'll ever see your loved ones again and people are dying alone people. And then the, the sad truth is people have been doing that for a long time. It's just that the magnifying glass is way up, you know, we're now seeing a lot of what other cultures have been seeing for decades and decades and decades. And, you know, it's sad, but for me, I definitely am writing a lot more. The rest of the summer, I want to be writing, 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 recording, recording, recording. And so hopefully by the fall, I'll be sharing a bit more. Um, I did a set in West Hollywood a, a few years back when I was in LA and they've been so gracious and they've been begging me to come back and work with them again. And I just haven't been East uh, West Coast for a while. And now that there's COVID, all of their sets are virtual. So I actually can, you know, get a set going. You know, it's it's these weird coincidences, these weird silver linings that are, you know, it, it it feels horrible to say that anything good can come out, you know, but we do have a movement happening. You know, I do have, you know, non-BIPOC friends calling me on the daily about how they can help and what they can learn and and they're understanding that it's not my job to, you know, educate them every step of the way. And they're taking the initiative, you know, and and they're still checking in and you know so it's it's one of those things where i have no idea how this year is going to go but part of uh, i like to take different parts of different religions and so there's a big part meditation is a big part of my life from the buddhist uh faith and my meditation game has got to get stronger you know and i'm just i'm building tribe i'm building tribe because we're in a war we have been for a while and you lose, you lose friends, you gain friends, you lose tribe, you gain tribe. But I think the, the tribe that I'm looking to build is, is looking pretty hot and we're all over the world and we're multilingual and I'm a ground floor millennial, millennial younger, big up. We're, we're, we're not settling for things that were handed to us broken. We're here. We're strong, you know, so I, I feel very empowered about the future. I'm actually really excited about how many, kids will be able to vote by the time this election comes around and the educating, um, the coding. I'm just, it, 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 and that's why I love looking at social media. You know, it's, it's great to watch younger people just doing it. Just not, not, no mother may I, we are, you know, we're already getting hip to the fact this was never a meritocracy, you know? So mm -hmm. I just love it. Like you have Wi-Fi, go. You want, you know, to write, do it. You want to love, love, do your, go, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I and I'm very I'm very amped about that. I get very excited. So this year I hope to and you know it's 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 tribe. So it's you know watching amazing artists who, because of the white supremacist system, have never done an off Broadway show. Have never done you know they're not considered. You know there's this awful thing about regional theater. They call it invisible theater, and it's just so rude. <laughs> you know, and some of the most amazing artists in the world have spent decades just traveling the country bringing their craft to different places and and I'm a native New Yorker so I get you know but it's like it's called the great white way for a reason you know so it's it's I'm very interested in watching these walls coming down and just seeing different cultures come up and these beautiful shows that just show you hey we're here we've been here not only have we been here we have the corner of all the stories we know how to do them you know even in this country like oh you you speak a bunch of languages that's not impressive. Go to, go to Africa, man. My friends are trilingual in wonder. That's, that's nothing. That's, that's how it is, you know? Like, mm -hmm. so it's, 
it's one of those things where I'm just excited to see exponentially how much growth there is. Honestly, no matter no matter what happens. Am I scared? Yes. Because, you know, I, I did study, I got a degree in political science at Williams. I was a contract major. I fled to Paris after 9-11. Um, and I, I studied genocide. <laughs> I studied genocide, ethnic conflict, mm. uh, how to weaponize race and gender parity within, within governments. So, you know, a lot of stuff that I know, I, how do you foresee a pandemic? But, you know, I did have friends in China. By December, I knew that there was a virus. And I said, well, if it's there, if it's in Beijing, it's probably at JFK because that's a really highly frequented, you know, flight schedule. So, um, you know, but all we can do is keep moving forward. That's, that's what, that's why we're here. If we didn't keep moving forward, you and I wouldn't be speaking here today. So we don't have a choice. So might as well eat healthy and meditate and get some good art in and keep doing the good work and, you know, educating. Yeah. I, I told myself, um, you know, I, I had this like mantra, uh, around around things to to put up, and I I kept telling myself like write a book, build a home, you know, write a book, build a home. Oh, yeah, and, um, yeah. And but I want to make a movie. Okay, all and right. I, and I want to star in it. Okay. And then and then you'll bet you'll star in it with me. Bet. Hey, let's do it, man. Like, let's start. Let's start. We'll 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 move the people the way that we were moved. Yes. Growing up. Yes. This is uh, Rachel Holmes. Yay. She was gracious enough to share her story, Aww. her insights, um, her career, her hopes, her um, criticisms, <laughs> um, and her values with the good listeners of Cook on Quarantine. Uh, how can people stay connected to you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, on Insta, I am at atagirlrach. So that's A-T-T-A-G-I-R-L-R-A-C-H. I'm also at atagirlrach on Twitter. I am starting to, I'm starting to come into my own dreams of my last name is Holmes, like Sherlock Holmes, do your homes work. That's something I tell a lot of my, my crew and a lot of people I teach. I love that you said graciously because my middle name is Grace. And I knew that logistically, but did not really come into that name until I held my father as he transitioned. And so I do go by Rachel Grace Holmes and it has been an honor to talk to you. And I really am going to hit you up and we're going to start writing that. We're going to start writing that film. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope you're ready. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. I'd like to thank Rachel Holmes for taking some time to share a little bit about her story, her journey. Um, we sort of had a meandering conversation about all things uh, equity, uh, you know, being an artist growing up in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, her story is is really interesting and varied, and she has a lot of great perspective. She lives a a lifestyle that you know I, I really want to emulate. Like she she eats incredibly. Uh, well, uh, she lives well, and you know she's she's good people. So I appreciate her coming on and sharing her story. You all can see if you're looking on YouTube. I'm wearing I represent the marathon today. Uh, bought some merchandise from the marathon store, which was started founded by uh, the late great Nipsey Hussle. His message of inspiration and ownership is one that I definitely align with. I think we were part of the same tribe. Many of you know I started my company, the Luther Harris Holding Company, uh, named after my great-grandfather. 
Luther Harris, who came to San Francisco with a sixth grade education, uh, built built a, a career and a life for him and his family. And um, he represents a legacy of doing for yourself, building yourself, improving your community, you know, not making any excuses. This is his dictionary behind me. You can see that if you're on YouTube and, you know, the primary focus of my business is strategic advising. I work with a number of companies and nonprofits helping them meet their strategic objectives. If you're looking, if you're interested in talking more about that, I'd be happy to. You can reach out to me at info at Stevon Cook. Uh, this brand that we're building, Cook on Monday Morning, is owned by the Luther Harris Holding Company. And as many of you know, since the pandemic started, I've increased the number of interviews that I've done. So we went from just Monday morning to doing it three times a week. We called it Cook on Quarantine because we didn't want to be limited by the amount of days a week. But the cadence of three times a week is sort of what we've been doing as of late. I'd like to thank uh, David Topete, who's done all of the editing and post-production for the podcast. I appreciate you, sir. Uh, David is incredibly talented. Everyone that is impressed by the video portion that we do is impressed because of David. <laughs> so uh, thank you, David. I'd also like to thank Fernando Cinco Marquez. Whenever I write a blog or put out a newsletter, uh, all the cop- copy editing is done by Nando. So thank you, Nando. I appreciate you. Um, I'd like to thank everyone that has been a devoted and supportive listener of the podcast. Thank you. Please be sure to uh, like, subscribe, share the work that we're doing here. It's been a slow build. It's been a slow grind. We've sort of built this really awesome group of early adopters that believe in this message of ownership, that believe in elevating people that are about substance and building. Um, You know, substance isn't, uh, a topic that gets incredible attention, sort of lowbrow stuff gets incredible attention. And so we know we are building something that's not for everybody. It's just the goal here is not to be the biggest podcast in the world, it's to be, uh, to represent uh, greatness. And so uh, the people that I invited on the podcast represent that. Rachel represents that. The people that listen represent that. And if you want to help grow this community, the the best thing to do is just share with a friend. You know, somebody might be interested in a racial story or one of the many other people that we've had on, share with a friend, tell them to subscribe. It really helps and goes a long way. If you want to do something else that's really tangible, you can obviously uh, start to purchase the merchandise that is going to be soon available. On the podcast, you can be the first to see it and get it by subscribing to my newsletter, stevoncook.com. You'll also be able to see a bunch of past blogs that I've written. Be sure to uh, be the first to get the merchandise when it's released. There's going to be a number of great items. I'm really excited about them. It's, it's great for people that just want to represent this, this mindset also, this idea of like ownership and building yourself and owning the day. And so um, that's what this show represents. And you can identify with that by purchasing some of the uh, merchandise that we've created. Just like I did for um, the late great Nipsey Hussle, because, you know, I, I represent the marathon also. The marathon continues. One other way you can support the podcast is by, is before you do any of your Amazon shopping, go to steveoncook.com, go to the books page, click through any of the books, 
and then proceed to do your Amazon shopping. You don't have to buy any of the books. Obviously, if you do, that'd be great. Uh, just for your own benefit, if any of them interest you, you should purchase them. But if you just click through the link and go on to do your Amazon shopping, a small kickback will come to uh, the company, which will allow me to cover the cost of the show. Merchandise, doing that, like the show all sort of comes out of uh, my pocket now. We don't do any donations. We don't do any Patreon stuff. Um, you know, so it's all viewer supported. That keeps us independent. It keeps uh, me, you know, continuing to say and do and and just be honest and and, and elevate the stories. So those are a few tangible ways to support the podcast. This podcast was started based on a legacy of my great grandfather and this this desire to showcase and promote love for the people of San Francisco, the people that keep our city running, the people that keep our streets safe, our, our saving lives, folks like our firefighters, police officers, MTA workers, our school teachers, all of our educators, our um, school lunch workers, our custodians, you know, our social workers, the people that clean our streets, uh, the people that uh, are building companies in our city. This podcast is for you, it's for all of you, and it's for those gig workers, the folks that are delivering food, picking up people and getting them to where they got to go during the ride share work, exposing themselves to this vicious pandemic. This podcast is also for you. I want to do something nice for all the single mothers that um, are in our community. Uh, if you know about a single mother that can use a night out that needs some, that I can, you know, pay for dinner and pay for a childcare for a night for her to go out with her and her friends, her and her friend, send me an email about her. I uh, use email me info at Stevon Cook. And, you know, uh, I'm looking to do this, like I mentioned in past outtakes, about once or twice a month. There are people sacrificing trying to raise children, take care of them. And, you know, that's that's a lot of work. And and I just want them to know that they're appreciated, they're loved. Uh, and so if you know of anybody that's deserving of that, again, send me an email, info at stevoncook.com. I also just want to give a final shout out to the people that listen to our podcast all over the country. I mentioned a lot about the people in San Francisco that keep this podcast moving. It's also for people in cities like Oakland, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Miami, Orlando, Tampa, the Carolinas, uh, all across New York, Gary, Indiana, Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, um, Denver, and our folks on the continent of Africa, people that uh, my friends, my my Kenyan, my Ghanaian brothers, my Ethiopian and Eritrean brothers and sisters, um, thank you all for supporting the podcast. And um, I deeply appreciate you. So the next time we see each other again, um, I hope it's not too long. I hope that you'll reach out to me and let me know what you think about the podcast. I hope you hit me on all my social media channels uh, at LinkedIn. I'm at Stevon Cook on Twitter. I'm at Stevon Cook on Instagram. I'm at Stevon Cook. <laughs> um, subscribe to the newsletter. Subscribe to the podcast.
uh, yeah, use us by going through Amazon. And, uh, you know, I've surprisingly just kind of met people on the fly and I wanted to have them on here. So if you have show guest ideas, hit me about that. And let's continue to grow this thing, this 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 beautiful thing that we're trying to do together, this, this mentality that we're trying to elevate together. As we do that for one another, we do it for ourselves. Peace, peace, and we out. Thank you.